Good morning. I'm Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen Family Groups, and I am absolutely thrilled and completely filled up to be here this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful weekend it's been, and uh, I'm filled up. My sincere thanks to Charlotte and the committee for uh, extending an invitation for me to come down here and, and be an Al-Anon speaker this weekend amongst a plethora of wonderful speakers this weekend. So, wow, you guys, your picker was on target this weekend. We've, I've learned and heard some good stuff, so thanks for including me in this process. It's, I always feel blessed when AA includes Al-Anon because my personal belief is that it's a family disease and that um, we need to work it together as best we can. So my thanks for including us in that. And a special thanks to Bonnell, who's been the hostess with the mostest this weekend. And uh, she took me to her home for lunch Friday, and she's been um, all about keeping me entertained this weekend, and I take a lot to keep me entertained. So thanks, Bonnell, for sharing your love with me. Um, and thanks for that goodie basket in the room. I have to tell you, I really like I, to, it, uh, the rubber duck thing in the basket. has been quite fun. I'll be playing with that, I can assure you. And uh, I like toys. I still play jacks, so I like, you know, all those kind of kitty toys still to keep me entertained. So I'll be fiddling with that, I know. So thanks for, for sharing that with me. Okay. Um, I guess you, I need to tell you a little bit about me and get over my nervousness this morning that I have. You know, I'm grateful. My higher power works for me in a, in a wonderful, wonderful way. I almost always, when I'm paying attention, get exactly what I need. And this morning, the page encouraged to change. What I read, what touched me today, was it was about faith. And I chose to take that on and go, you know, higher power, I need to have the faith in you today that I'll just be the channel. I'm just the voice this morning. Anybody else could be here. Please let me share what you want me to share and let me be your voice today and your hands and, and your heart today when I stand up in front of the group. So uh, we'll see what he has in store for you and for me. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm pleasantly surprised in about an hour. Um, a little bit about me. I'm the fourth of five. Um, no real alcoholism in my family. I saw my father drunk twice in my whole life. Um, so I didn't have, didn't have any odd connections with alcohol because it just wasn't something that was a big deal at our house. But what I do know for me is that even as a young child, I had things that I preferred. I liked to be in charge. I like to direct you, steer you in the right manner, move you down the right path. Whether we were playing Barbies or whether we were putting on a neighborhood puppet show, it didn't really make a difference. I liked, and still do, like being in charge. And so uh, that became an item once the alcoholism poured its fertilizer on what's in me, Things just bloomed outside of me. Um, I was always in charge even in, in grade school. In about the fifth grade, they separated the boys from the girls. And so for fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, it was all girls. And I don't know if you noticed, but I'm on the tall side. 
Actually, the, the taper said today, he said, you're tall. I said, you're kidding. I didn't know that. <laughs> because, you know, I don't, my brothers and sisters are all either my height or taller. So we see eye to eye on things, but I guess I'm tall. And I do need to tell you that I'm a little bit taller than my other half, who's the alcoholic in my life. So just so we get it taken care of, I truly am his higher power. <laughs> So uh, I took care every year in grade school, starting in the fifth grade, when they did the nativity story, because I was the tallest, I got to play Joseph. So I'd drag Mary to the little inn, and I'd listen about how we didn't have any rooms, and had I been in charge, we'd have called the Holiday Inn and had a room booked in advance. We wouldn't have had any of that manger stuff. I'd have had a comfortable bed like I have over at the Marriott, my goodness. Things wouldn't have been the way they were for Mary had I been there, I know. Life went on, and I went to college and went to high school and then college, and toward the end of my college life, my dad, one May, had a heart attack. And my mom wanted to be alone. You know, we'd gone through all the drama and crisis that's associated with those sort of instances, and my mom said, you know, I I just want to have some time by myself. So a girlfriend of mine said, let's go over to the new little bar that opened up in a former brewery. I said, sure, love to go. It'll give mom some time. So I walk into this bar and walk right up to the the bar, and there's a, a man standing behind the bar, and he looked up at me. And he said the words that still just make me go a flutter. He said, don't I know you from somewhere? And you know what? He did. Because my husband lived in a duplex earlier in life on the first floor with his roommate, and my older sister and her roommate lived on the second floor. So he remembered me from when I was 16. Ah, it was love. We went on our first date, and he took a 12-pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. And we sat along the river, and we got to know each other and made out. And on the way home, he informed me that we were going to get married. I just didn't know it. Wow. I was said I was so excited. And I remember I got home, and my mom and dad had all kinds of rules about locking the screen door and turning off the lights when you got home. You know how parents do. And I walked into the house, and we had a shotgun house, you know, room, row after row. I grew up in a city. And I walked in, and I noticed this glow that was coming from the kitchen. I thought, oh, my God, what's the matter? And I walk in, and my mom and dad are holding hands, praying over a votive candle. I said, oh, my God, what's the matter? And my mother looked up at me, and she said, did you know that he was divorced and Baptist when you went out with him? (laughs) And I told my first lie to my parents as a result of the family disease of alcoholism. I said, Mom, it's not like I'm marrying the guy or anything, even though just a few hours before, and I'd already approved, I already knew we were going to get married. So we dated for a few years, and he popped the question, and When we told my folks, my mom 
was not thrilled at all. And so she said, you need to go see the maternal grandmother and break the news for her. You're, to her, your father and I are not blessing this marriage unless you get grandma's approval. So we went out to grandma's house and we sat in kibitz for a little bit and finally we're sitting around the kitchen table and grandma says, well, Michael, do you love her? And he said, yes. And she said, Pauline, do you love him? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, break out the bourbon, there's going to be a wedding. And I said, whoa, always being in charge. Before we have that cocktail, can you dial 4312954 and tell the screaming woman at the end of the phone that it's going to be okay. So the other half and I got married. Now, I noticed while we were dating, because his part-time job was a bartender, that we already started certain patterns that kind of bowed, that kind of worked their way into our relationship. He'd work, and on about 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd start, start tossing them back. And at 2.30 when he got off, he'd toss back a few more, and we'd go out for breakfast. And it was at those times when he had just enough of a buzz on that he'd share his heart with me. And I had a name for it. I called it Blue Talk because the next day he never remembered what the heck he said. But you know me being a good pre-Alanon, I remembered it word for word <laughs> and could spit it back to him word for word. And so for many years I tried to recreate that whole idea of his sharing his heart with me, excluding the booze. But that became a, a job that I just could never fulfill. So we tied the knot, and we moved to his folks' farm. And I don't know if you ever saw the show Green Acres. <laughs> Minus take away the furs and the boas and the diamonds, and the blonde was me. I had no clue it was a working cattle and tobacco farm. And I had no clue what I was doing out there. I remember the first time the stove didn't work, and he said, well, did you change the tank outside? I said, Mike, where I grew up in Covington, you turn the stove on, the flame appears, and you turn it off. There's no changing tanks. So I learned a whole lot of, uh, of, of fun stuff living on the farm. His mom and dad were in one house, and we were on the other side of the farm in a, in a trailer. When we came back from our honeymoon and um, opened all the presents, after that was all done, I cried uncontrollably, just uncontrollably. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, you know what? I really want to go home to my mom and dad. And he said, why is that? And, and I couldn't tell him, but deep in my heart, I had no clue how to be a partner in a relationship. I really had no clue. What I did know is that his drinking was bothering me because he wasn't living up to my expectation of what this life should be. I thought he should go to work, come home, I'd fix Chung King out of the can, we'd have a lovely evening together taking care of the cattle and the stuff on the farm, and life would be wonderful and children would come along and all the things that you read about. But our existence was different. Three or four nights a week, he was driving from the farm about a half an hour over to a, a close-by city for business meetings, have a few drinks with the boys, go out after work and relax. And so I took it upon myself to try to change the way he lived his life 
and come home to the charming wife that was waiting for him. Now, I had already started being angry about his drinking. And you know what's so weird? Is my alcoholic, the hit Mike, is a bar drinker. So I didn't really see him drinking night after night. But what I knew was, was that when he was drinking, and I didn't even see it, it made me mad, meaner than a hornet. I think you might use language like unmanageable. (laughs) And that's where I was, but I wouldn't have told you that. I would have told you that he needed to change, and that because I was his wife, I needed to change him. And so we had pretty much a rhythm that started early on in our relationship. All about 7, 7.30, I'd call the bar. Always a fun thing to do because you'd call the bar and you'd say, I'd say, is Mike there? Now, typically, the bartender at that point would muffle the phone and I'd hear him call over and he'd say, Mike, are you here? And my alcoholic would say, tell her I'm not. And so I'd hear that over the phone. I'd wait a few hours. I'd call again. Sometimes I'd get to speak to him. More often not. Sometimes I'd get in my car and I'd drive a half hour over just to circle the bar. You know, for when he came home so that I knew what questions to ask. So I'd go through that, and I'd be building up a good head of steam. And around 11 or 11.30, which is the time that all good couples are supposed to go to bed, at least in my book, I'd lay down and wait for the husband to come home. I looked my virginal best, I know. And every time I'd think I'd hear that gravel spinning on the road to the farm, I'd hop out of bed, pop the blinds, look out to see if he was there. And if he wasn't, it took me a good half hour, 45 minutes of just stirring myself up before I was ready to say, dang it, Pauline, just lay down. Just go to sleep. But you know what? I couldn't do it. I was so mad I couldn't do it. So I would uh, hear the gravel spin, pop up, get whacked on my big old honker every 20 minutes with hearing the gravel on the road, and eventually 2 or 2.30 in the morning, he'd come home. Now, I knew he was coming because I'd already been to the blinds, but I immediately would lay down in the bed and begin one of the best Academy Award-winning shows you've ever seen. <laughs> I looked oh so sweet, and he would come in, and he'd change his clothes, and he'd lay down by me. And then all of a sudden, the Wicked Witch of the West would rise. (laughs) I'd start with the questions, and I'm sure those of you who are in Al-Anon, you'll probably even know the answers. I'd say, how many drinks did you have? And he'd say, two. (laughs) And I would say, you're a liar. And then I'd say, were there girls at the bar? He'd say, no. And I would say, you're a liar. And so I'd question him, you know, 20, 30, 40 questions, trying to get all the details of his sordid evening out. And all he wanted to do was lay down and pass gas. But I, I was ready. I'd built up a good head of steam for this. 
So eventually, in my high drama, I'd grab my pillow and I'd go to the door of the bedroom and I'd say, I'm taking my pillow and sleeping downstairs. You just don't love me or I'm sleeping in the other room. You know, I don't have to put up with this from you. And I'd march out of the room. And then I'd stand in the living room. <laughs> and I would wait because my expectation was was that he would come out and he would say, oh, Pauline, he'd look up at me, at course, you know, you're the love of my life, I love you with every fiber of my being, please come back to bed, I promise I'll never drink again. In 14 years, that never happened. <laughs> but I expected it to. And so when he didn't show up after a while, I'd march back into the bedroom. By now, he's conked out. I'd get right over his face in the bed, lean down real close, and then if you listened very closely, you'd hear the bells ring, at least in my head, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the games are about to begin. <laughs> and I'd start the next round of the fight. I woke his sorry butt right up because, you know, he'd been out having a good time. I've spent four or five hours getting ready for this, and he wasn't just sleeping on me. Uh-uh. So we went through this for about four or five hours. Eventually, he'd make the promise, I'll try to do better, I'm going to stop drinking, whatever it was to shut me up. And I'd lay down and, try and go to sleep, get up, go to work, and two nights later or the next night, it would be the same thing. And that was pretty much our existence for 14 years, with some variations on the theme. Sometimes I would, um, uh, I went through my period where I decided to prove that he drank a lot. And one of our agreements, he said, you prove to me that I am not home as much as you say I'm home. The last alcoholics, I'm going to give you a hint. Don't ever say to a pre-Alanon, prove it to me. <laughs> Just don't go there, because I'm all about research and development and analyzing and making slideshows. So I got myself a blank calendar with spaces and four colored pens. And so for each time that he went out, I would write in, in one color, the time that he said he would be home, the next color for the first phone call, the third color for the next phone call, and the final color for the time that he actually walked in the door. I collected my data for a solid month. And at the end of the month, I made an appointment to see my husband for the presentation. If only PowerPoint had been invented then, I'd have had fly-ins, big things. It would have been wonderful, I can assure you. But my calendar was done. I did have it in a little plastic sleeve, but took it out because of the glare. I wanted to make sure he saw it. So I showed him the calendar to prove, that's what he said, to prove that he was gone a lot. And he looked at that calendar and I gave him my spiel and reminded him, verbatim, of what he had said to me. And I thought, you know, this is it. This is going to be the time where he's going to say, okay, you're, you're right, you're right, you're right. 
I got done with my presentation, and he went, so? (laughs) (sighs) What I took away from that was, was that my methods of maneuvering him, trying to steer him one way, maybe channeling him different, weren't working. I needed to maybe kick it up a level. (laughs) And so I went through drinking with him, no sex, all the sex he wanted, giving him no money, buying him whatever he wanted. None of that seemed to work. Yelling, screaming, oh my, it just wasn't a pretty sight. I, one time I decided I'd built, my head up, built myself up into a good head of steam, and uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night up home. I'm from Newport, Kentucky, and it was in February. And up there in February, it's cold. And at that time, I had hair down to my waist, and I had gotten up around, oh, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I had gone over the edge, just had gone over the edge. And I put on my red robe. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was pre-Alanon, one of the things that I liked to do was be a martyr a little bit and suffer for him and what he was doing so that he would know. And so I had this red robe that I had lost the belt for, but being a good suffering pre-Alanon, I had found a piece of jute that I tied it up with. So I decided that I would go drive around the bar one night and see where he was. So I put on my red robe over my shouldn't be seen in public PJs, and my blue flip-flops, my dark lenses of my glasses, and I drove to the bar purely thinking, I'm just going to drive around the bar. And I had built myself up into such a head of steam that I saw his truck and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I am getting him. Tonight is it. So I got out of the car and I walked up to those doors and it kind of reminded me of a western saloon. And I saw those doors and I pushed them aside and I walked in and I stopped and I looked around at everybody in that bar and it pretty much stopped the action in the bar. Everybody turned around and looked at the new cowgirl that had just walked in. Everybody but that cowboy at the front of the bar nursing his draft smoking a cigarette, my mic. So I stood at that door and I thought, tonight's the night. So I sauntered on up to him, more like I ramrodded up to the bar, and I looked at him and I yelled at the top of my lungs, either you leave now or I'm going to create a scene. (laughs) It did work. So that was my life, and I have to tell you that my charming husband was not the only one to reap the benefits of my lovely skills. I'm the person who will count your items in the 12 item or less, and if you have more, I will tell you. If you read a newspaper on the bus and you choose to leave it there, I will get off a bus stop early and carry that newspaper to you and tell you that you shouldn't leave the newspaper on the bus. Don't think about parking in a handicap slot if you don't have the sticker on your car. Because prior to the program, I'd have followed you and told you about that. And don't think about checking in a line. Because I will raise myself up to all six foot one of me. 
and I will tell you exactly what I think about you checking in line. Makes you all kind of feel for my husband, doesn't it? (laughs) Don't. Um, He can hold his own. Love his little heart. So uh, that was my life. During that process, I have to tell you that I had pushed any idea of a spiritual connection out of my life. I had grown up being raised Catholic and play a couple musical instruments and was involved in the liturgy and and felt very close to my understanding of God at that time. But when I used to make those deals late at night with God and say, God, if you bring him home sober tonight, I'll be nice to him tomorrow. Or God, if you bring him home by midnight tonight, I promise that my silent treatment will only last for three days, not four. (laughs) When that didn't work... I got very angry, very mad at God. And I didn't choose to hold it into myself either. I told everybody exactly what I thought about the whole God thing. And so I was pretty mouthy, really sarcastic, thought I was tough. My motto was, never let him see you suffer. Pick yourselves up by your bootstrap, Pauline. Don't you cry a tear in front of him. Even though I would, I'd cry and rage every night that he went out. That was just my M.O., because that's the way I chose to respond to this disease. And I never saw him drink a lot until I chose to go out and and try to drink with him. So we lived that kind of life. On the other hand, I have to just tell you a a little bit about what he was doing. My husband started a construction business. And in the late 80s, the recession hit, and the business went down the tubes. When he started that business, he chose for a while to stop drinking. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is what I've I've wanted. I was a little ticked, though, that I had not been the one to get him there. Because, you know, it is all about me. But since, you know, I thought, well, well, we'll take it, and we still just need to maneuver him a little bit and channel him this way and steer him that way and you'll get him on the right path. After his not drinking for about six months and what I know today was him being a dry drunk, I remember sitting across from him at a restaurant one night and saying, oh, sweetie, you might as well go ahead and have a drink. I didn't know any better. Now, I called my husband an alcoholic with many adjectives in front of it, and I called him a drunk with many adjectives in front of it. But boy, if you had asked me if my husband had a drinking problem, I'd have said, oh no, 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 not my husband. Because my own personal shame made me, my choice, the way I responded to it was, was to try to hide it as best I could. I just tried to put on the best face I could, pull myself up by the bootstraps, don't let him see you suffer, Pauline, and smile all the time and just say, I'm fine. I'm fine, thank you. Just fine. I'm fine. Fine all the time when inside I was a mess. About once a year through work, I'd go in and see the employee assistance person and I would do a dump. I would take his inventory, all the things that he did to me. And I'll never forget one year she reached across the the chair and she grabbed my arm and she said, Pauline, there's a group for people who love somebody who drinks too much. It's it's called Al-Anon. 
You could go there, and they might be able to help you. And I remember I put on my best condescending look, and I reached my hand across, and I rubbed her arm as well, and I said, but you don't understand. I don't have the problem. He does. And so I'm really looking for you to give, tell me what I need to do to make him stop drinking. I couldn't hear that I needed help. And so when his business devolved and and went out of business, um, we were at our low. We lost the home, all the stuff, uh, cars repossessed at night. Sundays were filled with process servers. I guess that's the day that they could catch us at home. Didn't answer the phone because of all the creditors. I was absolutely miserable and not telling a soul. Not telling a soul. Didn't know what to do. When Mike and I would argue each night, one of my favorite lines to him is I'd get right over top of him and I'd get out my finger and I'd say, you don't have to put up with this crap from you anymore. I could leave if I want to. Or maybe you ought to leave. And, you know, we'd go through the big talk. And one night he came home after we lost everything. We moved to a little house that we're in now in in Newport. And he was still driving way out in Florence to drink. And uh, he came, he had gone drinking one night, and I believe for me, my higher power worked in my life that night. It was the same MO. I got ready for bed at 10.30, like all good wives do, and I'd already called the bar a couple of times trying to convince him to come home. And it was the same every other night, nothing different. I laid down to go to sleep, and I started to build up, you know, the head of steam And I remember a voice coming in my head. For the first time, a message made it from my head to my heart. And it said, Pauline, you do not have to put up with this anymore. That was the first time I'd ever heard it. I'd not heard it up until that night. So when he came home that night, there was no fight. Nothing. He laid down, does what an alcoholic does, and went to sleep. The next morning, I told him that, you know, I'd like to talk with him in a day or two. And the next day after that, I sat down with him and I said, Michael, I love you dearly. I do. I'd I'd give my right arm for you, but I can no longer live this way. And I'm not sure what has to change. I don't know. But something's got to change. And about two weeks later, I came home. Michael was unemployed then. He'd lost the business, and he was just sitting at home. And I came in, and he said, do you have that number for that employee assistance group at work? Of course, being a good pre-Alanon, I'm always prepared. So I pulled out my little card and gave it to him, and he called, and he went. They told him he needed to go get an alcoholic assessment. So he went to some agency, and he took a test. And he came home and told me that, yes, it was confirmed he was an alcoholic. Now, of course, I'm thinking, buddy, I've been telling you this for about 14 years. And you're just now picking it up? I didn't know to be grateful for the little things that happened. Gratitude was not something that was part of my life. So he went into a hospital group. And he came, actually, 14 years next week. He came home from his hospital group, and he said to me, the hospital says 
that you have to come to the meetings too. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a bobble-headed dog. <laughs> but, you know, I got all attitudinal, and I told him, I don't have the problem you do. You're the one with the disease. I don't know why I should have to go and ruin my life for something that is your fault. So he talked and talked, and I thought, you know what? I'll go, because I should be the good, supportive martyring wife. And so I went to the hospital group. And in that group that night, I believe for me, my higher power worked for me the second time. Not that he hadn't been working there before. I just couldn't see it. And in that group that night were moms and dads, husbands and wives, partners, sisters, and brothers who all loved an alcoholic. They loved somebody who loved to drink. And they were all as bothered by it as I was. I had never found anybody at that time I thought to share my misery with, but I, didn't, I hadn't found anybody who I could connect with or relate to. And in that meeting that night, I believe I hit my own personal bottom when I looked and thought, oh my, I have something not right with me. And when we drove home that night, I was crying uncontrollably. And the other half said, why are you crying so much? And I said, Mike, I'm crying because I didn't realize until tonight how crazy I had become. I thought I was doing what every good wife should do, that I needed to get him to stop drinking. His mom had told me that if I had just stopped nagging him, he'd stop drinking. My mom said I needed to clean the house better, cook better. <laughs> Chung King only goes so far. <laughs> but in that group that night, I met people just like me. What a gift. What a gift. The hospital group told me that I needed to go to Al-Anon. Well, she came back out again because I certainly didn't want to change my life. Not that I had a big social life, but boy, if you had asked me, I'd have told you that I was Miss Social Butterfly because I was all about hiding what was going on and making things up and lying to keep face. And so I went to my very first Al-Anon meeting on a Tuesday night in November 14 years ago. And um, I was blessed that night because... Um, I think my higher power worked again that evening. First off, I heard laughter in the rooms, which totally ticked me off. <laughs> what is so funny about this disease? Thank you very much. But you know what? On one hand, I had that attitude, and on the other hand, I wanted to be able to laugh. That was gone from my life. I lived for sarcasm. The more I could put the knife in and turn it, the better I felt. But I wanted good, from the belly kind of laughter in my life again. And I thought, wow, these, these folks have something. They know how to laugh at somebody who's got what my husband has. I think I'll go back again. And so I went to meetings night after night for my first year, sometimes two a day, because I needed so desperately to have what you have. I just needed it to kind of sometimes at meetings just flow over me and, and just feel what I feel. Yesterday I got so filled up when somebody was reading the preamble I had to grab Bonnell's hand 
because this program just sometimes just hearing the words just totally puts me at rest and peace. And so I started going to meetings and I, I found myself a home group because that's what you told me to do. So I have a home group. It's the New Beginnings group that meets on Friday night in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. It's the best group in Kentucky, I think. And I have three foster home groups. I go to meetings also on Monday, Friday, and or Monday, Wednesday, and uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Sunday. I do service work at all four groups. I'm the greeter at a couple of them. I'm the literature person at one. I do what you all have told me to do, which is give back to a wonderful group that has given me so much. I decided that I would do what you asked me to do and get a sponsor. Now, that was big drama for me because I didn't know whether I should get somebody that I could relate to or somebody that I liked. Um, and what I opted to do was find somebody who has what I looked toward, what I looked up to. And so I have a sponsor who's nothing like me other than she's just a little bit shorter than me, but she's nothing like me at all. Politics, religion, nothing alike. But what she gives me, what I keep learning from her, is how to walk this program and how to learn to incorporate the steps and traditions in my life by my talking with her. I didn't know what to do when I got her, but I slowly learned to pick up that phone that weighs 10 pounds and pick her up and have her start me on the journey of working the, through the steps. So we went through the steps, and I'll never forget when I was at a meeting on one Tuesday night, they had a meeting about the fourth step, and this was very early on in my recovery, and there was a double winner in the room. And she was sharing her struggles with the fourth step. And so after the meeting, being the good early recovery person, I went up and offered to help her with her fourth step, <laughs> that I could help her decide what her character defects were, that I had some opinions about that already, and that we would just make a list together. Later on, I, I got to eat crow and go back and make amends to her for that, and now we just laugh and hoot and holler about that. Every time she sees me, she'll say, want to do a list? So uh, I, I just love that. So uh, I started making the steps part of my life, and uh, that, that's been a big joy because... I got to re-find re me, because me was long ago gone. What I look like physically, what I enjoy today, is so far different from what it was when I got, before I got into the program. It's just totally different. But I didn't know how to be me. Now, when I got into the program, I wasn't thrilled about him being in AA, because I thought I should get some credit, frankly. I had, you know helped him somewhat, I thought. And I decided that I needed to follow him a little bit to his meetings to make sure that he was doing things right. So I will never forget my first AA meeting. I walked upstairs to a group that meets in Newport. It's in a, a, a refurbished church. And I walked upstairs, and I, I was real resentful because it was a smoking meeting, and they had this big line of steps. And I walked up, and I turned the corner, and there was probably between 250 and 300 people there on a Friday night. And this woman grabbed my hand, and she says, Hi, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't know to say, Hi, I'm Pauline and Al-Anon, and I'm sure I just mumbled. And uh, she said, Come sit with us. And so she took us to the other side of the room. And when I looked around at all those alcoholics early on in my recovery, I thought, They're all going to need to feel my love. 
I'll start with her first, then I think I'll do him. And I like the color of her jacket. Maybe she'll be my third one that I deal with. Because I was so new, I was still in to fixing and saving, controlling, maneuvering, saying just the right thing to steer you the way you needed to be steered and directed. So it took me a long time to let go of that and learn to just be in the moment. About all five years into the program, um, I got to learn about feelings, which absolutely terrified me. I was so afraid that if I started to cry that I'd never stop. I was so afraid that if I let the anger out of me that I would do harm to myself or somebody else. And about five years into the program, in March, I got severely depressed. And what my sponsor and I decided was that I had never grieved my father's passing because when he had died, I directed his funeral made sure people were standing where they needed to stand, that the body looked the way it needed to, that the police were there to ride along on their motorcycles. So I never allowed myself the opportunity to grieve and to feel the passing of somebody that I truly loved. And so I went through several months of just feeling those feelings and grieving my father's passing. I didn't necessarily like that. But being on the other side of it now and looking back, I see the many gifts because it allowed me to go through something that naturally should happen. I had just stuffed it so far down that it only came out when my higher power said, Today, Pauline, you're going to learn to feel. And today I know that my feelings are much like waves. They come and they go. And what I've learned is that I don't have to act on every one of them which is what I used to do. If I had a feeling, then I needed to do something about it. But today I've learned to just be and let it go through me and feel what I need to feel. About seven or eight years into the program, I got complacent and thought, this going to meetings every night, I miss the start of TV shows at the beginning of the season, and it affects me doing this, that, and the other thing, and I should, you know take a little break or something. And work conveniently rearranged my schedule for two weeks so that I was, mostly by choice, unable to get to meetings. And at the end of that two-week sabbatical, the other half and I just happened to be in a bookstore, like a Barnes Noble. And I'm in the feng shui section, (laughs) trying to get spiritual about how I want my home to be so calm and so peaceful. And I'm paging through the book, and I notice a woman looking at calendars. And oh my gosh, the box of calendars that she's looking at falls off the counter onto the floor. I close my book, and I I observe her. She looks around and starts to walk away. (laughs) I walked over to her. Rose, you know, raised myself up. I use my height when I need to. I'm just not that well yet. I raised myself up to all six foot one, and I looked at her and I said, it seems to me that you knock the box of calendars over. How about I help you pick them up? She says, okay. So she comes over, and I stoop down and start putting the calendars in the box, and I notice that she's still standing. She hasn't chosen to join me yet. <laughs> 
So I look up at her and I say, you know, if you join me here putting the calendars in the box and take responsibility for the actions that you've done, the world will be a better place. (laughs) I think I know how to play the guilt card pretty good. She joined me and put the calendars in, and I went back to the feng shui section and had tabbed the book that I was looking in and opened it back up. And all of a sudden, you know, my higher power just appeared and basically said, what the heck do you think you were doing? And I closed the book because at that moment, I'd realized I'd made a mistake. I'd made a very poor choice. My sponsor always tells me that I can think anything, but I can take action on very little. And I had chosen to take action, and I needed to find the woman. So I raced through the bookstore, (laughs) looking for the woman, and I passed my husband, and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to make amends. (laughs) And we didn't find her. So... I then said to him, come on, we have to go to some other big store so that I can be nice to people. I have to be nice to people. So we went to Best Buy, and I held the door for everybody, and we went to Walmart, and I offered him carts. I think the guy thought I was trying to steal his job, but I had to be nice. And the reason I tell you that is because that exemplifies one of the tools in this program that I have found to be particularly powerful for me. For many years... I had obsessed, I had paid obsession to people and places and things. I paid a lot of obsession to my alcoholic. I paid a lot of obsession to you and the way you drove your car, or to you and how many items in your grocery cart. What I needed to do was move that someplace else. And with the help of a higher power through step six and seven, I've learned to pay attention, not pay obsession. So today I learned to be a little more tender in the way I look at things. I'm more apt to see the tear in your eye and give you a hug today. Prior to the program, I'd have never seen the tear. I wouldn't have congratulated you on your new job. I'd have been mad that you had something that I didn't. And I would have obsessed about how I could get you for getting it. So I've learned to tune in at a different level so that I see the laughter, feel it in my heart, see the tear, can feel it in my heart, and let you be just where you are and do my best to be of service to you as best I can. Not trying to fix or save you, just being of service and just paying attention to where you are and hopefully being of service if I can be. Um, A few years after that, both of our mothers, my husband's and myself, our moms got sick. And um, uh, it got unusual. They both ended up in in nursing facilities at the same time. And um, I guess it was four years ago that um, both of them were in nursing facilities. Yeah, my dates are getting goofed up. They were both there. And... um, we were tr- I'm the only daughter-in-law on my husband's side of the family. I'm the only girl, and I was very close to his mom. 
she taught me just volumes of things about living on the farm. She used to laugh at my silliness about not knowing what to do. And um, when she became sick, my husband and I became caregivers to her. And then when she went into the nursing facility, were there to uh, stroke her hair because you all taught me how to pay attention to that and not get mad at the doctors or the nurses who didn't do what I thought they should do. That I could bathe my mother-in-law as well as they could. And I could put lotion on her skin to soften it up when it felt dry. And so that year in 19, uh, or in 2002, in February of that year, I was blessed to be the person who was there when my mother-in-law passed away. Just me. What a gift. What a gift. I don't know about your God, but my God's really good. And my God gives me opportunities for me to be of service and to do the things that I didn't know how to do, that you all taught me how to do. My mother got progressively ill in 2002, and that just happened to be when there was a convention in my little neck of the woods that I was involved in. And you know, my God worked uh, some things out for me in, in that process. I was at that convention, and a woman came up to me, and she said, um, I came down from Canada, and I was in the area, and heard that this convention was going on, and I thought I would come to the convention. And I said, oh, you know, glad you're here, welcome, blah, 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 blah. And she said, but I think I'm here for another reason. And I said, what's that? And she said, I need to give you this book. It's a book about grieving the loss of somebody you love. And I am moved to give that book to you, and I don't know you. And I gave her a big hug, because that weekend of the convention, the doctors had just told us that my mom was going into hospice care. Is God good or what? So I got that book and uh, worked through losing my mom. It was not the happiest of times. I had a... uh, At home, we used to call them come-to-Jesus meetings when you had something really important to say. I had a come-to-Jesus meeting with God. I wrecked my car as a result of it because I thought I knew best and didn't need to lose my mom. But, you know, for me today, surrender is an experience. It's kind of a, it kind of builds up. And then all of a sudden, I'm there. And I needed to have a come-to-Jesus meeting to get there with letting my mom go. And so Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, the night before Thanksgiving in 2002, the hospital called, or the, the nursing home, and said, come on over, your mom's you know, not going to make it through the night. So all the siblings gathered around, and they said, you know, we think your mom's going to make it. And so I said, I'll stay, and y'all go home. So uh, the next morning, my brother spelled me, and I went home, and uh, my husband tucked me in and went to sleep, and the phone rang, and I thought it was going to be the hospital. And I picked up the phone, and it was a man actually from Atlanta. And I've never met him. Couldn't even tell you what his first name was. But he had called to ask me to do something in service to AA. And I told him that I I couldn't do it, that my mom was was, uh, really sick and and was dying. And he said, said, well, what's your day been like? And I said, well, we were at the hospital, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning, and and she, you know, they're not sure how long she's going to make it. And he said, guess where I've been? And I said, where? He said, I've been at the nursing home with my mother-in-law all night. Want to talk? Is God good or what? So I talked to that man from Atlanta. 
And later on that day, we were, my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews were all standing around praying grace before dinner. And my cell phone rang. And my other half had volunteered to stay with my mom. And while we were standing praying, the call came that my mother had passed on Thanksgiving Day. It takes a lot to be grateful for that, but you know she's in a better spot. But what I learned from those kind of things is that my higher power works. What I need to do each day is pay attention to my higher power working in my life and in yours. And when I see my higher power working, it continues to give me that faith that I read about this morning. It continues to give me hope. It continues to feed all the good things that I've learned in these rooms. I choose today to focus on those kind of things instead of focusing on our differences. When I sat in these rooms early on, I very much focused on the differences. What you said wasn't what I needed to hear, and I didn't like the way you looked, or I didn't like your attitude. But what I've learned today is you are where you are for the reason that your higher power has you there. And maybe, just maybe, if I'm paying attention, I can see the little blessing, the light that may go on in your eye during the meeting or see you give somebody a hug that I know really helped you. What a gift to be able to just tune in and see those kind of gifts that, come, that happen every day. So on days when I'm spiritually fit, when I do the things that you all taught me to do, I get up, I read supportive literature, Al-Anon literature and other things. I pray, I meditate. I try to reach out to somebody else in the program each day that I can. I try to live what you all have taught me. To me anymore, it's not about just working the steps. It's about living it. And then all of a sudden, I'll see something in me that I need to pay attention to. And then I get another opportunity to work the first step. Or another opportunity, I pay attention and see that I need to work the fourth step. And then another opportunity to give that to my higher power. Or another opportunity to say I'm sorry. If I just tune in to the gifts that have been given me. I have to just briefly comment before I close on this wonderful theme. Sponsor, sponsorship, service, and self-support in a changing world. What a wonderful motto for a wonderful group of people. To me, what this says to me I learned to reach out for help in this program through sponsorship. I had tried to do it all by myself for many years and couldn't. And today I know I can reach out to my sponsor or somebody else and get a hug or talk to somebody and reason things out. Because what I still tend to do is I want to reason it out here in my head, which is the worst place for me to reason something out. And it's about service, of me learning to help you as best I can. Not try to fix and save you. Just be of help to you, no matter what that is. And for me to be self-supporting. For so many years, I looked to him, to the alcoholic. I looked to my job. I looked to something else, the things, to fix me. And what I know today is I need to be in my own skin, and be grateful for exactly what I have and who I am today and be the best that I can be 
so that I can be the best at helping and being a channel of my higher power today. And with the world changing all the time, that can be tough to do. Job changes, work changes, fog on the way down, and, you know, on the, and delayed flights. It was interesting on the way down, the flights were delayed because of fog and you know, all these people were grousing and complaining. And what I chose to do was see the opportunity, more time to read my book, more time to people watch in the largest airport in the world, I think, in Atlanta. <laughs> but you know, if I learn to just be and I pay attention, I see those opportunities and the gifts just pour. They're just there. What I have to do is pay attention and have a little bit of willingness to pick it up and look at it and go, wow, what a gift I've been given today. And the extra gift that I got today is your presence to each one of you for being here and giving your smiles and your vision and your good, loving feelings that I felt today. So my sincere thanks to each and every one of you. Thank you.